Dark Cast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Greetings, believers, skeptics, and paranormal thrill seekers, to another episode of Through the Veil. I'm your host, JD. The guy who was once terrified as a young child by the movie Silence of the Lambs. I'm sure you were all aware of the classic story of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where the good doctor would steal corpses from graves to build and reanimate a custom-stitched human being. I, of course, prefer Mel Brooks's version, Young Frankenstein, myself. That kind of fiendish behavior doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what good old Ed Gein did with his nightly visits to the local cemeteries. What if I told you that Norman Bates from Psycho, Buffalo Bill from Silence of the Lambs, and Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre were all based on a real person? I am of course talking about the original ghoul himself, Ed Gein. Yep, all three horror icons, all birthed from the same nightmare of a man. In this episode, we will be looking at Ed Keen, his life, his dirty deeds, and then we will look at a paranormal investigation of Keen's property and the evidence that they were able to collect. It's going to be a good one today, folks. Grab your drink, turn down the lights, and grab your blankie fashioned from human skin and we will dive headfirst into the life of Mr. Ed Gein right after this message from another Darkcast podcaster. Darkcast Network. The light shines brightest on our indie podcasts. Welcome to Creepy Tapas, where we do the opposite of deep dives and bring you tiny tastes of terror connected by a common ingredient. True stories to haunt and chill you and the pop culture they inspired. Or at least the movies and books that remind us of them. Join us as we descend into darkness. Beginning with the lighter side of our weekly topic. And wrapping with a full dark, no stars account of terror, madness, murder, and more. It's Creepy Tapas, y'all. Welcome back to Through the Veil. Now, I have to give a little disclaimer before we continue, due to some of the graphic nature and descriptions of the content in this episode. Listener discretion is advised. Okay, now that we have that out of the way, and you can't blame me for the therapy some of you may need after this episode, let's begin. What do you know of Ed Gein? Some of you may have heard of him. Some may have not. Some of you dedicated weirdos like me may know all about him. For those of you who don't know, you're in for a treat. For those of you that do, stick around. I may have something you haven't heard yet. Now for this episode, we are traveling back to August 27, 1906, where Edward Theodore Gein was born to George Philip Gein and Augusta Gein. He was their youngest son, born just five years after his eldest brother, Henry Gein. Life wasn't all that great for Ed. He grew up in a home with an alcoholic father and an overly strict and religious mother. Augusta hated George. He couldn't hold a job, although he had many, and Ed's mother was known to preach to her boys about how the world was an immoral cesspool 
and that all women, with herself being an exception, were the instruments of the devil. Every afternoon was Bible study time, in which Augusta forced her children to listen to her talk about death, murder, and divine retribution. George Gein, at one time, owned a small grocery store, but it was a short venture, and as he sold it to move his family to a more isolated part of their home state, Wisconsin. George took his family and purchased an isolated piece of farmland that spanned 155 acres in Plainfield, Wisconsin. Augusta loved this property. She knew that this isolation would keep the greedy and evil world from getting its hands on her boys. She felt content in knowing that the influence of the world would be kept at bay by this sprawling and lonesome property. The only time Ed and his brother left the farm was to attend school. Any other time, they were forced to spend their days at home doing chores. Ed was described as a quiet child in school. He did well academically and showed great aptitude for reading and comprehension. However, he was also described as an odd child who would sometimes be caught giggling and chuckling to himself. He had no friends as his mother punished him every time he tried to make a friend. She saw this as the evil world trying to sneak into his life and influence him to the path of destruction. Strangely, this type of upbringing actually solidifies the relationship with his mother. Whether she actually believed in all the nonsense that she spewed into Ed and his older brother's ear remains irrelevant. The point of the matter is this. She became the entire focus in their lives. No one was going to love them like mother. They felt this with every fiber in their being. They relied on her to fulfill every social and physical need whether it was love, interaction, punishment, or just the basic needs such as food and shelter. The world was no doubt a great big scary place for the boys, and Mama was the only one who knew how to protect them. You can see how this has the Norman Bates vibe now coming on strong. Mama was everything. Life started to change for the family in April of 1940. Ed's alcoholic father died from heart failure due to his drinking, and the family now had no source of living income coming into the home. This caused Ed and Henry to take odd jobs as handymen around the town. The residents of Plainfield generally thought rather highly of the Gein brothers. They were noted as being honest and reliable. Ed also took several babysitting jobs for the neighbors. He actually rather enjoyed spending time with the children as he felt more comfortable and natural being among children versus the adults. His mind was more childlike than a mature adult and now his brother had began to build a rather serious relationship with a divorced mother of two. The relationship was moving fast and Henry decided that he was working towards moving out of the Gein house on the isolated farm and with her and her two children. I'm sure Mama was going to be overjoyed with that idea. Henry started to worry about Ed and his bizarre attachment to their mother. Henry didn't hide his discontent with their mother and their upbringing. He often said things about his mother that shocked Ed and caused him to show signs of visible hurt. These weren't things that were really so bad. 
He wasn't calling her names or wishing an ill fate on her, just things about his unhappiness and, and his desire to get away from her. And four years after their father's death, on May 16, 1944, Ed and his brother were burning vegetation on their property to stimulate the fresh, clean growth when the fire suddenly had gotten out of control. The huge flames and smoke pillars drew the attention of the local fire department. It took the firefighters most of the afternoon to control and diminish the flames, and Henry was nowhere to be found. Ed reported his brother missing after the fire. Armed with lanterns and a few flashlights, a search party formed and began to search for the oldest Gein boy. After a while, they had located Henry. Well, they located his body, face down in the brush. It was reported that Henry had actually been dead for some time. No specifics were given as to how long. The authorities claimed that it appeared as if Henry suffered heart failure as there were no external injuries or burns that could have come from the fire. The authorities didn't give any thought to the suggestion of foul play. It was ruled an accidental death. Even after the county coroner determined that the cause of death was asphyxiation, authorities never launched an investigation into this, and an autopsy was never performed. Why would local authorities not entertain the possibility of foul play? even after the coroner officially listed the cause of death as asphyxiation. I have a theory for that. Again, this is just my opinion. Remember we said earlier that the townsfolk thought highly of the Gein boys? They were reliable and hard workers. Ed aligned more with children than he did adults. In 1944, times were different. Reputations were at the forefront. It could have been simply thought that Ed neither had the capacity to commit murder or the desire, as if it was something out of the comprehension in his mind. I don't agree with that assertion, however. If anything, we look at the way his mother raised them, with strict Christian teachings. He would have no doubt known about the story in the book of Genesis about Cain when he slayed his brother Abel. As I said before, I'm just spitting out my opinion. The truth is, no one really knows why it was never investigated as a potential homicide. The truth was, now Ed and Augusta were all that was left of the family. And sometime in 1945, as told by Ed himself in a later interview, he and his mother were out visiting a man that he only knew as Smith. They were there to buy straw. He noted that he remembered the man brutally beating his dog. Ed looked to his mother, who said nothing. Then an unknown woman came out of running out of the house to stop him. Ed again looked at his mother, who now had an unsettling and displeasing look on her face. Augusta looked at Ed and told him that that woman was not Smith's wife and that she had no right being in his house. She then started referring to her as Smith's harlot. Let's take a look at the mental status of Ed. He wasn't married. He was now 39, still had a weird attachment to his mother, and she still treated him like a little boy. While I'm not discounting his later actions, I can honestly say that I don't think he was firing on all cylinders here. I mean, everyone has an odd tendency or a weird tick to their personality, and that's great. It adds diverse flavor to conversation 
and seven billion unique voices to the call of humankind. I consider myself a little more odd than most, and I have a rather dark sense of humor that often gets me into trouble. However, Ed? Ed was something different altogether, and it was like genuine odd. Like that awkward odd. Like getting it on with yourself while looking through a peephole odd, where you expect to see an attractive person on the other side of the peephole, but actually find out it's a poster of Betty Boop and not even in color for crying out loud. Ed's mother suffered a second stroke in 1945. Her first stroke hit after Henry's death. Her health continued to decline rapidly, and on December 29, 1945, she passed away. Ed's world was shaken, and he was devastated at the loss of his mother. She was 67 when she died. And in the words of biographer Harold Schechter, in regards to Ed Gein at the time of his mother's death, he had lost his only friend and one true love. He was absolutely alone in the world. Ed's behavior in reaction to the death of his mother wasn't all too unexpected. In times when parents lose a child, they often keep their bedrooms the way they were at the time of their child's passing. This actually has a therapeutic effect on the healing process and dealing with the grief of a loss. However, leave it to Ed to take things over the top. Not only did he maintain the pristine condition of his mother's room, he boarded up every single room she used and closed them off from the rest of the house. The rest of the Gein house he had let fall into disarray. It was a squatter's dream. He relocated himself to the small bedroom beside the kitchen and never touched any of his mother's rooms again. In his mind, they were sealed and impenetrable. His mother probably still lived on in those rooms, reading her Bible, scorning the evil world, and striving to protect what child she had left in this world, all in his mind. When we return, life goes on for Gein as his dark side creeps out and we start to see a new creature emerge. In the meantime, check out this other great podcast from the Darkcast Network. We'll be right back. Are you into the spooky and macabre? Is your inner witch dying to learn more about what makes the world magical? Do you occasionally crave nerdy horror content from film and RPGs? Well, have we got a podcast just for you. Join the squad at Mission Spooky where Kiki, JC, and Cord research some of the scariest historical places from Pennsylvania. Listen to our ghost stories and legends. Learn as we delve into the world of history, magic, and folklore. And be entertained with our D&D 5e RPG segment, Cordverse Cryptid. Find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts and follow us on Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And remember, stay spooky. And don't die. But if you do, contact us. Welcome back to the show. Let's continue on. When we left, Ed's mother had passed away in December of 1945. As you could imagine, Gein, who had an unhealthy obsession with his mother, was devastated. However, no one could have imagined that the death of his mother was like the breaking of a seal that was keeping a dark evil at bay. Gein continued to earn money from performing odd jobs for the townspeople. 
He also received a subsidy from the U.S. government for his farm. Dean managed to sell an 80-acre plot of land that once belonged to his brother. It was also noted that during this time, Gein became obsessed with fiction magazines and adventure stories, particularly those stories that focused on Nazi crimes and actions and cannibals. Now, after the death of his mother, apart from the odd jobs, Ed kept to himself. No one knew what he did in the old Gein house now and that he was alone. That would change with the disappearance of a Plainfield hardware store owner on November 16, 1957. Witnesses claimed that they saw the hardware store truck being driven out from the rear of the store at approximately 9.30 a.m. This began the disappearance investigation of Bernice Warden. The hardware store had not been very busy of late, probably due to to it uh, being deer season for the local hunters. Bernice's son, Frank, told investigators that on the evening before his mother's disappearance, Gein had been in the store to order a gallon of antifreeze and that he was supposed to come in first thing the next morning to pick it up. Investigators found a receipt for one gallon of antifreeze by the cash register. This was the last sales slip that she had written before she vanished on the morning of November 16th. Frank Warden, who also happened to be a deputy sheriff, claimed that he entered the store around 5 p.m. on the day his mother vanished. He reported that the cash register was left open and that there were bloodstains on the floor. Gein was later arrested at a West Plainfield grocery store. While he was incarcerated, the Washira County Sheriff's Office proceeded to search the Gein farm. Trigger warning. We are about to describe the farm and what was found during the police search. This part of the episode contains descriptions of a graphic nature. Listener discretion is strongly advised. When the authorities found when entering the property was a home in a dilapidated state. The walls were crumbling. There was hardly any floor area to be seen from the waste that had been accumulating over time. Authorities reported that the smell was overwhelming and that of pure rot and decay. If evil had a den, this was surely it. As they made their way carefully through each room, they began to make gruesome discoveries. They found whole human bones and some bone fragments. They also found chairs that Gein had replaced the seat area with tanned human flesh. When they made their way to the bed in which Gein slept, he had replaced the top of the bedposts with real human skulls. They had also found human skulls that Gein had removed the tops from and even made some into functioning bowls to eat from. And if this wasn't gruesome enough, they also found a corset made from a female torso that he had skinned from shoulders to waist. They found leggings made from human skin and masks that he made from the skin of women he had exhumed from the cemetery. They saw various paper sacks and paper bags around the house and investigators began opening them terrified of what contents they may hold and they were right to be terrified in one paper bag they found the death mask of a woman later identified as Mary Hogan that's a mask that he made using the skin from her face whole 
They found Bernice Warden's entire head in a burlap sack and her heart in a plastic bag in front of Gein's stove. They also found Bernice's body hanging upside down and cleaned like it was a deer. They found nine vulva in a shoebox and they found a little girl's dress and two vulvas from what was estimated to be two 15-year-old girls. And as they moved deeper into the home, the grim discoveries continued. They found a belt made from human female nipples. They found four noses, a pair of lips on a drawstring for the blinds, and a lampshade made from the flesh of a human face. Let's be honest, there were probably lots more that was not found at the Gein property because the property wasn't small and all the evidence that was collected was reportedly photographed at the state lab and humanely disposed of. During the investigation, when Gein was interrogated by authorities, he told investigators that he had made upwards of 40 visits to three local cemeteries between 1947 and 1952. He claimed that he was in a daze-like state while he exhumed recently buried bodies. He claimed that sometimes he would come out of the daze and return the grave to a proper state and took nothing. The other bodies weren't so lucky in their attempt to rest. Gein told investigators that he targeted the graves of recently deceased middle-aged women that he felt resembled his own mother. He exhumed the bodies, took them home, and used them to make various objects that he had stored around the house. He also told investigators that soon after his mother's death, he began to make a woman suit so that he could, quote, become his mother and crawl into her skin, end quote. Gein, however, denied having sex with the corpses because they, quote unquote, smelled too bad. It was during this line of questioning that he also admitted to the shooting of another woman by the name of Mary Hogan. And given the gruesome detail about the lifestyle of Gein, he began to be suspected of other murders and disappearances in Wisconsin. These cases included the 1953 disappearance of a babysitter known as Evelyn Hartley and an eight-year-old girl, Georgia Weckler, who vanished in 1947. However, Gein denied any involvement in those two cases, in which he was ordered to take two polygraphs in which he passed. And in November of 1957, Gein was officially cleared of any connections to the disappearances of Georgia and Evelyn. Despite this, many still believed that Gein was their man, and understandably so. Now, during the interrogation, Sheriff Art Schley assaulted Gein by slamming his head into a brick wall. This resulted in Gein's confession being ruled inadmissible due to physical coercion. Schley died from heart failure in 1968 before Gein was able to stand trial. It was said that he was so traumatized by the crimes of Ed Gein that it caused his death. And one of Schley's friends stated that, quote, he was a victim of Ed Gein as surely as if he had butchered him, end quote. Gein was arraigned in court on one count of first-degree murder on November 21, 1957. 
He, of course, pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. Well, I didn't see that one coming. He had been clinically diagnosed with schizophrenia and, of course, found to be unfit to stand trial. He was remanded to the Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Okay, is it just me or does that place sound like it was ripped straight from either a B-horror movie or a superhero comic book? The Central State Hospital for the Criminally Insane. Anyway, he was later transferred to Mendota State Hospital in Wisconsin. Gein was in hospital care for almost 11 years before it was decided that he could, in fact, be rendered mentally capable and able to, to participate in his defense. Gein's judge thought that, uh, no, excuse me, Gein's defense thought that opting for a trial without a jury may help their case. This, however, backfired. Judge Robert Golmar found Gein guilty on November 14, 1968. The second trial hearing for Gaines' state of mind. And after hearing the testimony from a plethora of doctors and specialists, the court stayed the finding of not guilty by reason of insanity, and he was sent back to Central State Hospital for the criminally insane. And this is where Gaines spent most of the rest of his life. Despite all the evidence collected, due to court costs and prosecution costs, he was only charged with the murder of Bernice Warden. Gein's home was set on fire by persons unknown on March 20th, 1958, before it was to be auctioned off on March 30th. Arson was suspected, but there was no rush to investigate by local authorities. When Gein was told about the fire while in custody, all he said was, quote, just as well, end quote. Gein died while in custody from, the, from respiratory failure in connection with lung cancer at the age of 77 in 1984. He was laid to rest between that of his parents and his brother. Over the years, people have visited his grave, chipped off pieces of his gravestone, and then in 2000, the whole stone was stolen, and it was later recovered in Washington State, and has since been returned. However, due to continuing vandals and attempted thefts, the stone is now kept securely by the state, and Keene's resting place is not marked but not unknown. Wow. That was all a little disturbing and definitely loaded with the makings of a great ghost story. All of that negative activity boiling up and coming to a supernatural head ripe for popping. And that's what we're going to be doing now. There was a documentary released in 2021 entitled Ed Gein, The Real Psycho. That was led by paranormal investigator Steve Shippey. We will be going over some of the evidence they found during their investigation of the property, the jailhouse, and other locations. And we'll get into all that and more when we return. Sit tight. We'll be right back. Well, hello there. I'm Regina King, the Evil Queen. And I'm Lynn Roskamp, the docent of darkness, and we're the hosts of Disturbing Interests. Do you get excited about mummies, decorating skulls, obsess over the loss of the Library of Alexandria, even though it was lost in a different age? Do you kill the conversation with your in-depth serial killer knowledge, facts about items made out of human skin, or have a strange longing to know the softer side of Mothman? 
have you spent an objectively disproportionate amount of time studying the life of H.H. Holmes? Oh, I, I wouldn't know anybody like that. No, certainly not. Well, I mean, we did call our podcast Disturbing Interest for a reason. That's right. We've got them. And we are doing you the favor of keeping the questions like, at what temperature does it take to destroy a cadaver out of your browsing history? Well, we hope. Because with us, you might be disturbed. But you're not alone. You can find us on any podcasting platform under Disturbing Interest, or check us out online at disturbinginterest.com. Welcome back, spooklets. Here is when and where we will now look at a paranormal investigation that took place 63 years later on the anniversary of King's arrest. The investigation was conducted by Steve Shippey and psychic medium Cindy Caza. Cindy immediately felt drawn to a specific area of the property upon walking through the old rust cattle gate that led onto the property from the main road. Once she identified the area she felt drawn to, it was then revealed to her that the area in question was in fact the area of the property where the old farmhouse stood before being burned to the ground. Cindy stated that everything is made up of energy and is capable of having other energies attached to it. With that in mind, she reached down to touch the ground and was taken back. She said she saw a lot of blood on, upon touching the ground. She then asked if there was a hill or a mound-like formation on the property. She said that she felt that there were more bodies buried there and pieces of bodies all over the property. And then she said she claimed to see the image of a woman wearing a white, long nightgown. Then she said she saw this woman standing off behind them, watching them, and completely completely aware that they were there. She said she almost felt as if the spirit was, was stalking them on the property and wasn't happy about them being there. She then told Shippy that she sensed it was mother. She kept hearing the word mother. Could this have been the spirit of Augusta Gein? Investigator Steve Shippey seemed to think so. Cindy claimed that the spirit was calling her a witch. And that would make sense given what we know about Augusta and her radical Christian beliefs. Now, after leaving the property, Cindy went back to town to gather herself to continue the investigation, while Steve went into town to visit the site of the old Warden hardware store where Gein had murdered and taken the store's owner, Bernice Warden, which ultimately led to his arrest. It had long since been out of business and converted into a storage facility, and the current owners claimed that they always felt that they were being watched. They have unexplained cold spots throughout the building and manipulation of physical objects being moved and or thrown with no one in the room. Steve unpacked his gear, such as a K2 meter, a REM pod, and other gear that paranormal investigators use on active investigations. Cindy later joined him with her sketch pad and pen, as she likes to write down things that come to her in real time, and she also likes to conduct automatic writing sessions. As Cindy was having difficulties in separating her visions from the property they had visited earlier and the site of the old hardware store they were at now, They heard a loud beeping or ringing in the distance, 
This was one of the REM pods that Steve had set up earlier. Now, a REM pod, for you that don't know, is a device that can pick up motion and invisible fields and objects around it. It gives off a sound and lights up when it's triggered. When they arrived in the room that the REM pod was in, the beeping stopped. Steve then asked if there was anyone in the room with them. At that point, the device lit up and alerted again. At that time, another device began to go off in the room as well. Cindy looked at Steve and told him she wanted to do some automatic writing. Automatic writing is like giving yourself over to whatever energies are in the area and just moving your hand and letting the energies produce the writing on the paper. Cindy did give the warning that she was only willing to do any of this to see what they could uncover in this case, but she was actually afraid to open herself up to the energies involved. When she gave Steve that warning, the REM pod began singing again. It's interesting to note here that Steve had a camera trained on the REM pod to rule out any external contamination, such as bugs flying by it and so on. In the footage, nothing can be seen interacting with the device, which would cause it to activate. Cindy struggled with the sounds coming from the devices, and she felt that they were purposely being activated to cause distractions while she tried to tap in or or open herself up. Once she was able to concentrate and continue, she began writing. She said that she felt the woman, Bernice Warden, was, was hit in the back of the head. Steve confirmed that she was actually shot in the back of the head. She also said that it was a deception, meaning Ed came into the store under a false pretense to put himself in the building with her. This is also confirmed as we know that Ed came into the store looking to buy a gallon of antifreeze. Cindy claimed that the antifreeze was just part of his plan to put him in the building with Bernice, making this premeditated. However, we also found out that during the time Ed was incarcerated, he claimed that he didn't know if the killing of Bernice was intentional or not. He said he was looking at the rifle, and when he was loading around into the weapon, it went off, hitting Bernice and killing her. Given the gruesome details of the entire Ed Gein case, I am more apt to believe that it was not an accident. His intention was to kill Bernice Warden. That, however, is just my own personal opinion. During her writing session, Cindy claimed that it was her belief that the spirit of Bernice Warden was not actually there. Her spirit was not stuck there. She felt that there was at least some psychic imprinting on the environment. Psychic imprinting is literally like uh, an event leaving a fingerprint on the environment. We see this in cases of what we call residual hauntings. A residual haunting is a, is a specific type of haunting that is not considered intelligent, meaning it is really like a video clip that has been playing over and over since the event occurred. You really can't interact with it on an intelligent level because in truth you'd be trying to interact with a memory. It is held that in theory, places can have their own memories as well as people. You know the old saying, if these walls could talk, well, perhaps they really can talk. Steve asked Cindy what her opinion of the reported phenomenon at the location was, if not Bernice. She answered that she felt that once someone starts tapping into Ed Gein's energy, it literally follows you. She said that once she stepped foot on his property earlier, it's like a taint that latches to you. At that moment, the equipment went off again and they heard a tapping noise coming from one of the back rooms. 
Steve and Cindy went to investigate the sound when one of the producers from the documentary claimed that her camera had just shut off and died. Battery draining is another common occurrence on any paranormal investigation where activity is uh, beginning to manifest. The theory behind this is that spirits need energy to manifest themselves in any way. They draw energy from any source they can, such as batteries, and even the air itself. Cold spots, or the absence of heat, are theorized to be caused when a spirit drains the energy, heat, from the area in an attempt to manifest. And manifestations are not limited to just visual manifestations. They are any physical interactions with the environment or those in it. Now, at this point, Steve brought in the SLS system. And what that system does is it projects a pattern of infrared light into the area. And this is attached to a video camera. Uh, think about the old Xbox Connect, how it could detect you and your movements. The principle is the same here. It looks for three-dimensional anomalies and then shows a rough wireframe interpretation of the anomaly on screen. While holding the SLS camera focused on Cindy, an anomaly developed in the shape of a person standing right next to her, she began to have a ringing develop in her ear. This was then startled by a mental image of her own ear being chewed or bitten off. When Steve confronted the anomaly and asked that if it was Ed and if he was doing these things to Cindy, the anomaly on screen vanished. Cindy began walking around the building in an attempt to locate the exact spot in which Gein murdered Bernice Warden. And while doing this, Steve introduced a one-gallon can of antifreeze from the period of when this would have happened. This is a trigger objects. Trigger objects are fun. Investigators over time have used a variety of trigger objects on investigations in an attempt to coerce activity from the spirits. A trigger object can be anything that may help remind the spirit of something when it was a living being. They, there have been toys used as trigger objects, family heirlooms, and now a one gallon can of antifreeze that Gein had used to put him in the building with Bernice. I have to give you this warning though, using trigger objects can be dangerous and they should only be used under strict discretion as using trigger objects can rapidly escalate activity on an investigation. Steve began sending out questions directed at Ed. He asked him if this was the spot or if he could show them the spot in which the murder happened. At that time, the mail meter, another alarm sounding gear, went off. This piece of equipment was located right next to the trigger object Steve had just placed. He then asked if there were more bodies located on the farm, in which the alarm beeped again, as if responding to his question. The next stop on the investigation was the Washara County Jail in which Gein was held for four days while he was questioned by authorities after his arrest. Steve got a tip from a local paranormal investigator named Michelle Fenske, who claimed that she had been to the jail, which was now a museum, and felt like she had been physically attacked by the spirit of Ed Gein himself. She brought along her laptop, packed with evidence from her investigation of the old jailhouse, to show Steve. She began playing a video clip of her team's investigation, 
One of the other investigators could be seen asking what the spirit's name was, and in turn they got the answer, Edward, through the spirit box. A spirit box is a modified radio receiver in which it scans through hundreds of stations a minute. Spirits are thought to be able to use the white noise between frequencies to communicate short answers. It is a widely used piece of gear with paranormal investigators to this day. Now on the video, machine could, uh, excuse me, Michelle could then be seen asking Ed why he wanted to murder people, to which another response from the spirit box came that said, eat them. At this time, Michelle claimed that she felt a strong burning or stinging sensation on the back of her neck that felt like she was being cut or, or scratched from one side of her neck to the other. When her hair was lifted out of the way, you could clearly see a red whelp forming on the back of her neck as they were filming. Given this information, Steve heads to the old jail. He calls Cindy to come along. Cindy is unaware of Steve's visit with a local investigator earlier. He did this intentionally so as to not compromise Cindy's perception during the investigation of the old jailhouse. And before we get into the investigation of the jailhouse, it's important to note that while it was being converted from a jail to the museum it is today, things were moved and remodeled. Gein's original cell was converted into an office. It was not among the cells that still stand as cells to this day. So when Cindy was walking through the jailhouse, she felt confused. She said things had been moved and she, she felt like she wasn't in the right spot when standing among the other jail cells. She felt drawn to another room. And once inside the room, she was, she was still confused. But it was revealed to her that she was now standing in the room that had once been Ed Gein's cell for the duration of his visit. She started getting the sense that Ed believed that he was doing his mother's work. She began picking up on him, telling himself and the authorities that his mother would be proud of the work he was doing. Steve turned on his own spirit box and began questioning any possible spirits that may have been there. He also turned on his K2 meter, which is an EMF detector, and his Mel meter, which is an EMF and temperature uh, variation detector. All the devices begin to sing their alarms at once all together. Now this could have been interference from outside, so I'm not going to chalk it up to a spirit being present, but I will say that it was complete craziness at how all the gear was going off simultaneously. After the investigation of the old jail where Gein was kept, Cindy personally noted that she really felt that Ed did all of this stuff to appease his dead mother. She said she felt like he really believed that his mother was proud of what he was doing and that it was all for her. And when we return, we'll go into our story, we'll continue our journey with Steve and Cindy as they return to the Gein Farm for a night investigation session. Stay with us. Are you a fan of true crime, cults, conspiracies, and all things sinister? Then tune in with me, your host, Steph, every week for a new episode of the Sinister Story Hour. You can find the Sinister Story Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back, my little spooklets 
to our journey with Steve Shippey and Cindy Caza as they investigate the various locations around Gein's hometown in a response to residents that claim that the spirit of Ed Gein still torments them to this day. Before the break, Steve and Cindy had visited the Gein's old property, the location of the hardware store where Bernice Warden was murdered, and the old jailhouse. Now they were heading back to the Gein farm for a night session. Let's continue. When they arrived at the old farm, Steve set up his REM pod, the trigger item from earlier at the hardware store. He set up the spirit box and the ovulus. He was ready for some intense responses. Let's see what he captured. Cindy immediately picked up on the strict upbringing of Ed. She picked up on the fact that Ed's mother never let him be himself, to be an individual with individual thoughts and individual feelings. She claimed that she honestly felt Ed was not born as someone unstable and terrible. She felt that he was created, and not only was he created, but he was created by someone whom he idolized and loved, his own mother. Just like before in the jailhouse, Steve's gear began going crazy again. The difference this time is that they were out in the middle of nowhere, so the chance of outside electromagnetic interference was slim to none. No power lines and no city lights. This makes the reaction of the gear more credible on an investigation. Interference is a common problem when investigating any location not as isolated as the Keene property. He asked Cindy if she was willing to do another automatic writing session to try to tap into whatever energy was there. Cindy stated during her session that Ed will not leave the town or the property until he is with his mother. Steve immediately decided now was the time to bring out the Geoport, the big gun. This little fancy piece of gear can theoretically help hear the spirits trying to communicate in real time, so much that you may often hear spirits over trying to over-talk each other. But it's more effective than a spirit box. Steve asked what the name of the spirit was, to which he got the response, Gein. He then asked why he killed Bernice Warden, to which the response was, Ed, does it, Mom. Steve then asked if Augusta, Ed's mother, was present, and immediately he got the response, be gone. He then kind of antagonized her by telling her that if she was that intelligent and powerful, then she could tell him his name. And the geoport sounded clear with the response, Steve. It also told him Cindy's name as well. Steve asked if it was Augusta that was with them, and it responded, here. He then asked if they were okay with them being on the property, to which it responded, stay out. And Steve asked Augusta why she would want Ed to hurt women. And it responded one word, demons. This answer goes right along with what we know Augusta drilled into Ed's head about all women, except her, being evil. Cindy began having visions of Ed as he committed the crimes. She said she saw Gein put his mother's necklace on the corpses and victims as he did his gruesome handiwork. 
they wrapped up their investigation of the farm as they they began feeling that they, they could be in danger. Cindy said later that she wasn't feeling safe in opening herself up to those energies. It was absolutely evil. They found themselves heading to the cemetery where Gein and his family were buried. Apparently there had been reports of a woman apparition being sighted there on occasion. Steve was heading out to speak with a local resident who had some information regarding the cemetery and some accounts of activity. Steve met with local historian Dave Bignell, who claimed that over the years people have snuck into the cemetery to steal handfuls of dirt from Ed's grave, perform some sort of ritual on his grave. He said that on any day you come in, you can find tufts of hair and feathers littered around Ed's gravesite. And Dave went on to tell Steve that while Ed was obsessed with his mother, even after her death, it went a lot further and that it was rumored that his ultimate goal was to raise her from the dead and that he heard voices instructing him to kill and rob the graves. As they were getting ready to bring Cindy in, they were approached by some of the local residents who asked him to leave the cemetery out of respect for it being a place of rest for the dead. Steve understood completely. So instead of an on-site investigation, he was going to attempt a remote viewing of the cemetery with Cindy. Now, remote viewing is a form of astral projection in which your spirit leaves your body and can go anywhere by traveling along the astral plane. This is a highly debated topic, and it's theorized that the CIA actually used it uh, and used remote viewers in the past to spy on enemies of the country. But I'll leave that for another episode. I don't know exactly where I stand on the topic of remote viewing or astral projection. I mean, anything is possible. It's never happened to me. But there are reports of near-death experiences where the individual states that they actually stepped outside of their body and was able to see it from a third-person perspective. But like I said, I'll cover that in another episode. In her remote viewing session, she said she felt like Ed would go to the cemetery after his mother's death and lay on the ground next to her grave in an attempt to be with her, and that he imagined himself brushing his mother's hair. This was supposedly something he did when, he, when she was alive. It was something that caused him to feel intimately close to his mother. She also got the sense that every body he desecrated and woman he murdered was like a sacrifice made to his mother for her favor. She also claimed that Ed felt as if he were being watched and stalked by a presence and which would take him over and his eyes would go black while he committed these horrendous acts. That's an interesting statement because during his psych evaluation after his arrest, he claimed that most of the time he had no memory of the grave digging or had fractured memories of the account. After the remote viewing session, Steve set up the geoport one more time. He felt that it would be productive considering Cindy had already tapped into Ed's energy. When he asked if there were more bodies on the farm, the geoport answered with the word mound, which calls a direct reference to Cindy asking about a mound or hill on the property and that not all bodies were recovered. It also sounded out the word possessed. Steve then asked who was possessed and the geoport answered loud and clear, Ed. Then without prompting, without a prompting question, it said, put on the suit. 
could this be referring to the female skin suit that Gein was constructing from the various body he had taken parts from? Now we get to a part of the investigation that takes a turn. When Steve and Cindy were investigating the land that the farm was situated on, they found out that it was the site of the Black Hawk War that happened in 1832. This was a war between various Native American tribes and the United States military. It was estimated that upwards of 600 Native American deaths were associated with that war. When Native Americans died or were killed in the battle, they were all buried in mounds, like the one ones on Gein's property that Cindy had picked up on earlier. This information drove Steve and Cindy to seek out information from the largest tribe still active in the area, the Ho-Chunk tribe. When they met with a Ho-Chunk elder, they met with Mr. Andy Thundercloud. He told them that when God made the earth, he made not just humans, but spirits were created as well. And these spirits exist in everything from the water to the trees, the leaves and the rocks and so on. They have a night spirit in their culture. Some are good and some are evil, and it's thought that the good ones protect the sacred lands, while others seek to destroy it. So what do you think, Spooklets? Was Ed Gein a psychopath? Was he a monster created by his mother? Was he influenced or possessed by his mother and committed these awful crimes? There was a lot of information presented in this episode. While there is a final part to the investigation that Steve and Cindy did, I'm leaving that out on purpose. I want you guys to seek out the documentary and watch for yourselves. The case digs deep into the darkness of the human soul. It hints at what abominations lurk in the hearts of men. Once again, I didn't know what I was getting myself into when I started writing this episode. I'm addicted to the rabbit holes I find myself tumbling down when I dig really deep into a topic. I enjoyed bringing this episode to you, and I know it was a bit of a long one, but who's keeping track anyway? I think we see how our actions as parents can influence and mold our children into the adults that they become. Will they become successful people, all-star athletes, or grave-robbing dead skin suit wearing ghouls lusting after the return of their own mothers? Who knows? We will never know the extent of Gein's mental state as one who is that disturbed also has capacity for great deception. Don't take your eyes off the quiet, odd ones. They may have darker secrets than you realize. Well, Spooklets, that's all the time we have for this episode. Don't forget to give it a five-star review and tell your friends about the Through the Veil podcast. We are a proud member of the DarkCast Network. You'll find a link to our website and the DarkCast Network website in the show description check it out. You might just find your next guilty pleasure there. If you like what we do here on Through the Veil, consider showing your support. You can do so by visiting the link to support our show in the show description or by sending directly to our cash app, money sign, The Veil Podcast. You can also buy me a coffee. But of course, as always, the greatest support is getting our podcast out to as many spooklets as possible. Don't forget that this Thursday, we launch the second episode on Thursdays where we discuss films that have a supernatural topic. We look at underlying tones and messages buried within the films. I hope you'll join us for that. Until then, this is JD, 
I hope you stay safe, stay healthy, and keep an open mind.